Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. John is watching the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, open the book of seals. And again, these scrolls and seals, it's like the title deed to human history, the title deed to the earth. And only Christ is able to open these. And so we heard about that in chapter 5, and here he is opening them. We also have heard over and over again that in order to understand the book of Revelation, you have to think through the filter of the Old Testament. John isn't just making this stuff up. The Lord is using the word of God that John has stored in his mind and his heart. And so it's filled with images taken from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the prophets especially. And so this vision here is actually found in Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah in chapters 1 and 6, he also saw four horses. But there, these horses went out to patrol the earth. Here, they're ushering in earth-shaking events. What's also interesting in here, the first one is the white horse, but the themes as John is unfolding them, they parallel what Jesus said in his great eschatological or in-time message in Matthew 24. Some of you remember that. Jesus is teaching what will happen in the end, and interestingly, this parallels some of what Jesus laid out about cataclysmic events in human history. The first one here, I looked, and there was a white horse. For first century readers, This could have meant many things, but I want to share with you something that I discovered recently about this. I've actually got an image up here that I put up here, and as John is having these visions, and again, we must embrace mystery. We're going to be asking, is this stuff figurative? Is it literal? Friends, it's probably a mixture of both. And again, we humble ourselves before Scripture. If you'll show the second image here I've got of a guy on a horse. And when the early hearers of this passage, when they heard this read, this would have been an image that would have come to mind. Those first century Christians would have thought of warriors, on white horses. They were the Parthians. Everyone say Parthian. Parthian. We're into learning stuff here, aren't we? The Parthians were the ones who rode on white horses, and they came in and attacked Rome. And they were kind of the underdogs, but because they were such well-trained archers, they could actually shoot forward, and they could shoot backwards. And they all rode white horses. They were incredibly intimidating. They came out of ancient Persia, and they would attack Rome and be successful at different times. And so 
Many New Testament scholars think that part of John's vision, the Lord is saying, these Parthians and others who are bent on conquest and wreak havoc, they are going to see forces throughout history, not just the Parthians in the first century, but in consequent, in subsequent times, they would see other forces like this. Are you with me on this? Seeing that this is not just one moment, but this is actually the vision revealing throughout time various moments where conquest and the lust for power and authority and these things would impact human beings. And John is going to remind them no matter what warriors come, what attacking forces might even attack your home city, you can have confidence. So this is the first of the four horsemen, the white horse and rider. Now there are various interpretations on this. I've already kind of showed you my card, what I think it is. I think it's a spirit of militarism and conquest represented by the bow and the crown. I find this to be the most convincing view. If you get online, you can probably find some people that will argue that this could be Christ, that it's giving you a preview later in the book. In chapter 19, you find Christ on a white horse and Christ conquering. But friends, I don't find that convincing. All four of these horsemen are rather negative. And so why would it talk about Christ and the coming conquest with the gospel and all? I just don't find it convincing at all. The second horse, let's look at this. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature call out, come. And out came another horse. This one was bright red, the color of blood. And this rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. So it lets us know that Again, as it's looking at these different forces and dynamics and consequences of sin throughout human history, beginning with the first century, this one is strife among the nations. If the first horse is invasion from external forces, this one seems to be more internal. Some commentators say it's civil war. Civil war breaks out at different points in human history as a result of human sin and lust for power and conquest. One commentator says this, the mission of this horse, the red horse, would have been quickly understood in John's day in the first century. They were well acquainted with rebellion and civil disorder. In one year, this commentator says, Year 68, Rome was ruled by four different emperors. And in the 34-year period prior to the reign of Herod, more than 100,000 insurgents died in revolutions and rebellions in Palestine. Anarchy and bloodshed were the harbingers of the end. Friends, I know this is heavy, but the whole counsel of God speaks to us. And I think the timing of what we're looking at is critically important. There's chaos in the nations, is there not? No matter how positive and optimistic we are, Jesus is Lord for sure, but we do not have to look at these things and whitewash it at all. Chaos 
can break out just like it did in the first century, just as it has in other times, it can break out on our day. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over all military conquest. Jesus is Lord over civil war. Jesus is Lord over all bloodshed. Amen? The third horse, a black horse. And again, these are colors and images taken from the Old Testament. This gets rather interesting and cryptic, doesn't it? This black horse here symbolizes famine. Symbolized by the scales in the rider's hand. What does the text say? At verse 5, this rider has a pair of scales in his hand, and there's discussion about a quart of wheat and these various things. The whole point of this is that famine is breaking out. You have military conquest, you have bloodshed and war, and famine. And so, again, these are interrelated dynamics that happen throughout the history of the church and the human race. When it says, don't damage the olive oil and the wine, this could mean many things. But I'm convinced it's probably letting us know that there's a limited nature to this. It's not the destruction of absolutely everything. And so the olive tree has deeper roots and the vision is signaling this is not a famine that wipes out and decimates everything. The olive oil and the wine are not damaged. So friends, Jesus is Lord in difficult times. And there are difficult times right now. We're rather insulated in America, are we not, as we hear these things. But there's famine all over the planet right now. There are African nations that are gripped with famine. This is a reality for them. There are places where these things are happening. And so we have to kind of pop our head up from our American experience and think about these things. And this would be an important truth for them. Jesus is Lord over famine. He is the bread of life. He is the provider. He's the sustainer, even in times of famine. Quickly here, looking at the fourth horse. This one is pale green, isn't it? It's a pale green horse. And it has following behind it death and Hades. If you remember... We saw in chapter 1, Jesus had the keys to what? Death and Hades. And so the vision is revealing, though all of these things break out, Christ is Lord even over death. The ultimate consequence of all of these things, Jesus holds the keys to death, to Hades, to the power of death, and to the place of of death. So these are the four horsemen, and Jesus is Lord over each of these dynamics in human history. Have you thought of it that way before? Is there some hopefully new insight into that? And friends, I, trying to walk through 17 verses like this, this is very challenging. Immensely challenging and humbling. This week, I had some desperate moments. I said, Lord, can we go back to chapter 5, please? 
Or can we fast forward to chapter 19 where it gets wonderful and the wedding happens and and I just sense the Lord say, humble, humble yourself before me and before the word. So I literally would take the Bible, lay it on the carpet, and get on my face and say, Lord, I, my mind is so limited. The mind of the church is limited. This is the word of God. This is how the story ends. How could we ever skip any part of it? I humble myself before you. I sit in silence and quiet. I've been reading and researching. But in the end, would you help us understand this in a new way? in a new light. And so I would urge you to do the same thing. We don't know much, do we? You can read and study and learn languages and all that, and in the end, we don't know much because God is an infinite mystery. We know one little tiny drop of oceans. And so, friends, I feel humbled as I look at this stuff. It's totally overwhelming. I'm not up to the task. But again, I want to do our best to work our way through passages like this. So here's another easy topic. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, and now we have martyred saints. Verses 9 through 11. This is a fifth seal. These are a number of seals that are being opened by Christ, the Lamb of God, the Lord of human history, the King who's bringing the kingdom to its final fulfillment This is a rather beautiful image here. The fifth seal is opened. John is seeing under the altar the souls of those who had been put to death. What? For the word of God and for the testimony that they had given. These are people that are in that interim time between death and resurrection life. So somehow he's seeing the souls of these people who have been martyred for their faithfulness to God, his word, and witness to others. Why are they under the altar? It's a place in this heavenly temple that means that they have been sacrificed and devoted to God. They're asking something here. What are they praying at verse 10? First of all, how do they appeal to God? You are the sovereign Lord. You are holy and true. How long will it be? How long? And again, friends, this might feel foreign to us now in this moment in America, but think about Iran right now, where if you are devoted to the word of God and to testimony in your neighborhood, your city, your village, your life is on the line 24-7. And many people are watching Friends, loved ones, family members being put to death because they're Christian. And so you can imagine when Iranian Christians gather together that they might say, Lord, how long? How much bloodshed? We're being faithful to your word. Now, is this a Christian thing to pray? I thought we were supposed to pray other things like, Lord, we forgive our enemies. But what does the text say? There's something. Are they appealing to human vengeance here? Are they saying, Lord, avenge us? We've been wronged. They've taken our sisters, our brothers. No. Who are they appealing to? The sovereign Lord. Lord, bring your justice, not human vengeance. Friends, this is powerful, insightful stuff that the text is showing. A couple of places in the Bible that would 
speak to this and reinforce this in Genesis 4.10. God says to Cain, remember this story? Cain, who murdered his brother Abel, listen to what the Lord says. Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. This is the Lord's cause, the Lord's justice. The shed blood of innocent people cries out to the Lord. That's what the text is saying here. Christ tells a parable in Luke 18 about righteous people who suffer at the hands of the wicked. Their only hope is vindication from God. And listen to what Jesus teaches. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will God keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. So friends, there's something in this text And again, it blows my mind. I don't pretend to understand it. But there is a place in Christ where we appeal to God, the sovereign Lord, and we say, Lord, how long? How long? And again, I hope that we never have to live through something where we pray like that. Can I get an amen? I I don't want to, but the word of God speaks to us. Now, and we've been seeing in Revelation, you see through the rest of the New Testament, if you're a Christian, if you follow Christ, you'll suffer. It's just part of the deal. So if you don't want to suffer, then don't follow Christ. Say, I'm out. If you want to follow Jesus, he makes it abundantly clear, take up your cross and follow me. I suffer, and you will suffer too. The beauty of this text here, what are they given? They're given a white robe. This speaks many things, but it's the purity that's provided through Christ. They're told to rest, rest in God. Jesus is Lord even over martyrdom. He is the supreme martyr in history. And we will follow him no matter what faces us. One early church father, Tertullian, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Friends, this is the word of God. This is why we listen to it. But I'm telling you, we are clothed in Christ. No fear. No fear. The white robe is Christ. Paul says in Colossians that we are clothed in Christ. All that Christ is for his people, we get to appropriate and put on. You're clothed with a white robe. Christ himself clothes us with his righteousness, his purity, his holiness, and his courage. Let's look at this last section here. Give you a little preview. We're going to have some time for worship after this. Because I think it's the right response. And Brad was saying this morning, can we worship a little more at the end? And I said, yes, please. We want to take the word of God and we want to respond in worship. This one here. This is a doozy, friends. I thought we weren't supposed to talk about wrath. 
right? And here it is as one of the themes, the sixth seal, verses 12 through 17. There's a great earthquake. And again, the Old Testament mind, the early Christians would have said, we know exactly what this is. This is God appearing, God manifesting his presence. And when he did, at Mount Sinai, the Exodus event, other places, the earth shook in response. God descended at Sinai. The Old Testament prophet says in Haggai 2.6, In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth. The whole cosmos, the whole creation responds, doesn't it? Look at this. You've got an earthquake. You've got the sun turning black, the color of sackcloth that's made from goat hair. You've got the moon turning blood red, perhaps from disturbances that are happening on the earth, the kicking up of dust, something in the atmosphere. All of creation is being shaken. And again, I think that they were seeing some things in their day, but another day is coming. There is another day coming. And this is sobering, is it not? This is where it gets dicey. Some people say, you're in that day, and these are the signs. and all. We hold that very loosely. We don't know. The truth is, since Christ was raised from the dead, the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear, it's the end time. So if anyone ever asks you, Claire, is it the end times? You can say emphatically, yes. Paul said, after the resurrection... After the ascension of Jesus, you are entering in. The age to come has invaded human history. It is the end times. So that's not even a question worth entertaining. We are living in the end times. Do we know when Christ comes back, when the ultimate fulfillment of these things happen? Do we know? No. Christ says only the Father knows. The sky vanishes like a scroll, like a scroll that's been pulled in two parts. All of this is rather jolting. Amanda read this, but this will affect everyone one day. The kings, the magnates, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, one day, friends, will see Christ's return. And we're going to learn more about this. This is like a little preview here. And this is where it gets extra challenging. Verse 17. And again, John is not making this clear. He's saying that there will be fulfillments. There will be suffering. Things will happen throughout human history. Here we are 2,000 years later. The Lord has been patient, letting more and more people experience salvation. The apostle Peter says, but the day of the Lord's wrath will come. Someone might say, but wait, aren't we new covenant people? Yes, we are. And this is a great mystery. I can't explain it in a few minutes, but I must first address what is the wrath of God? We're almost done here, but we're going to end with, with this. What is the wrath of God? It is the response of God's holiness, friends, to persistent sin. 
And it's important to see in a passage like this, this is not God aiming judgment at individual people. It's collective. It's groups. It's disobedient nations who have scorned God. We're going to learn more about this in the coming weeks. But as foolish as it is, there are many people who will say no to God. And they will resist God's love. And so wrath is a response to persistent sin and a persistent no to God. This is not the most popular, but again, we have to let the word of God speak to us, do we not? Second, God's wrath here. First, what is the wrath of God? Second, God's wrath is discussed in the Old Testament and New Testament. Jesus says this in John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1:18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So it's directed at godlessness and wickedness who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Friends, this is not trendy. Many people would avoid this. They would say we live in the era after the cross, after the resurrection. We are God's new covenant people. But where is this that we're reading in the New Testament? Where are we seeing this? At the end of the story. It doesn't get any more new covenant than the end of the story, and this is what the text says, does it not? I'm just reading it, making comments. It talks about a day of wrath that is coming, and the nations will be shaken to the core, and the entire universe will be shaken because God is holy. God is infinitely holy, and if you resist God, and you say no to the love of God, then judgment comes. I'm not saying this. The word of God is saying it at the end of the story, and we cannot back off of that. Amen? And friends, I would like to. Any of you have a little water that you want to use to water things down? This is that moment where I would love to be able to take a nice glass of water and water down the end of Revelation 6. Is that what we do as Christians? Is that what we do as we read the word of God? We let the word of God speak to us and then we humble ourselves in response. There is a day that's coming. Now, does that mean that we are terrified along with the rest of the nations and that God is angry and mean and ready to judge his people in the church? No. No. This is, as I will explain in the coming weeks, this is punishment for people who say no to God. And God is relenting over and over again. I love you. I'm committed to you. I want to give you the best. I want you to experience life the way that you should. It happens over and over again. And people say, no, I am not interested. Punishment will come the discipline, the loving discipline of the creator will come. For Christians, this is an opportunity to be purified. 
And friends, this is happening in other countries. It may happen here. If difficult times come, we don't turn to God and say, why are you doing this? You hate me. You don't like me. You're judging me. No, 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 friends. It's an opportunity to be purified. Punishment for disobedience, purification for Christians. This is deep stuff. I don't even pretend to fully understand it. I don't, but I humble myself before it. Lord, purify us. We're part of this group of people, this nation that's undergoing judgment. Therefore, use this to purify your church, to awaken your people. And we're rooted because we've addressed things like this in the love of God. Do you see why we have to look at texts like this? Are you with me on that? We have to look and be prepared. Because, friends, I'll tell you this. To exist is to suffer. If you're born into this world, you will suffer. Has anyone ever met anyone who's been able to skirt around suffering? No. Everyone will suffer. And you either get to suffer without God or with God. And so I've chosen. I've been angry at God many times over this very issue. Why is there judgment? Why does scripture talk about wrath? Are you mean? And at times, I don't like you. I've said that as I'm misunderstanding these things. And yet, I'm saying I choose to suffer with you. Because I'm going to suffer. And I choose to humble my mind and my heart before you. So we'll end with this. The wrath of God and the Lamb referenced here is experienced by those who refuse to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Just listen to this. For Christians, the wrath of God was absorbed by Christ on the cross. Christ's death made atonement and propitiation, which basically means turning judgment into grace and favor favor for believers. One of my favorite New Testament scholars, Wayne Grudem, says this. Listen, if you hear anything, listen to this. We should feel no fear of God's wrath as Christians. For although we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of humankind, Ephesians 2, we now have trusted in Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1. No fear. So if fear is rising up in your heart, You've got to check that, and you've got to say, Lord, you are good, you're sovereign. This whole thing is a mystery, but I trust you. I'm following the martyr, I'm following the crucified Jesus, but I trust you. Why don't we have the worship team come up? And I just want to say, if you haven't trusted Jesus, or you've turned away from the Lord, or you've done one of these, no, I encourage you today, you listening online, say yes to the Lord. Now is the time to give your life to him, to submit to him as Lord, because it's coming. One day, everyone will bend the knee to him. So I encourage you today to bend the knee, to give yourself to him, to let him love you. And I also encourage you practically, each day, if possible, pray the scriptures. 
We talk about it around here. Open the Bible, even if it's just for a few minutes. Listen to the Bible on a podcast. Get, get the Word of God in your spirit and extract something that you can pray. We talk about it regularly, praying the scriptures around here. And friends, texts like this, as difficult as they are, they come and reinforce our vision here as a church. We worship. We bow before the mystery of God and God's infinitely beautiful and glorious and difficult plan. But we're also sent out to witness, to talk to other people about it. So why don't we stand? I appreciate you. As I look at you, you're either faking it really well or you want to run for the door or you want to close your Bible So I appreciate, we're in this together, are we not? We're into reading the whole counsel of God. And we're into probing this in prayer and humility and saying, Lord, we receive your love. We receive your love. You are good. You are sovereign. You are not us. You don't do things the way that we do. So we bow before you. And we say, you are good, you are sovereign, you are awesome. And you are worthy of our worship. You are the Lord of human history. You are the Lord over all of these things we've seen in chapter 6. And we praise you.